and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Luz Nguyen, a student at Oberlin College and co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy organization based at Oberlin College. My guest today is Jessica Clark, professor of law at Vanderbilt Law School. We will discuss her article, They, Them, and Theirs, published in the Harvard Law Review. Welcome, Professor Clark. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you on. So let's start off by saying, you know, how you became interested in this paper and what the main crux of your argument is. So my paper is about non-binary gender, um, people who do not exclusively identify as men or women. And I come at this topic from a perspective as a legal theorist who studies feminism and LGBT rights. Uh, For a long time, many progressive feminist and LGBT rights-oriented scholars thought non-binary gender was just a non-starter. It was too implausible, impractical, or utopian to merit serious attention. Uh, But today there are an increasing number of people who identify themselves as non-binary. The largest survey of transgender people to date was the 2015 U.S. Transgender Survey, and it had 28,000 respondents. And in that survey, the finding that seemed to surprise the researchers the most was that 35% of the respondents said that they preferred to be categorized as non-binary rather than transgender men or transgender women. And if it's true that there are about 1.4 million trans people in the U.S., which is a Williams Institute estimate, that means there are half a million non-binary people, which would be a population about the size of the city of Miami. But the U.S. Transgender Survey didn't count non-binary people who might not consider themselves to fall under the label transgender. And so the total number of non-binary people could be even bigger than that. Uh, There was a Pew Research survey uh, recently that found that one third of Generation Z, which is people born after 1996, knows a person who uses non-binary pronouns like they, them and theirs instead of he or she. Um, So this group is newly visible and that new visibility has got legislatures, businesses and courts now questioning laws and policies that presume there are only two gender identities. And in 2017, the California legislature passed the Gender Recognition Act, which allows anyone to switch the sex designation on their official documents from male to female or X, X being non-binary, so long as they attest it's not for a fraudulent purpose. And uh, the last time I checked, there were eight states that were allowing Uh, changes on identity documents to X, and the numbers is increasing. Um, And Washington, D.C. and New York do this as well. So I'm interested in what it would mean for law and policy to take non-binary gender seriously as an identity that deserves respect equal to that afforded to men and women. And my article in the Harvard Law Review argues that the law can recognize non-binary gender identity or eliminate unnecessary sex classifications using familiar civil rights ideas and concepts. So as a quick overview for our listeners, what is gender identity and what is non-binary gender identity in the most uh, uh, 
com- common words you can use. Okay. Yeah. So in order to understand what non-binary gender is, I think it's helpful to get three concepts out on the table. Um, these are three concepts from the transgender rights movement, um, and they are first sex assigned at birth. That's one concept. A second separate concept is gender identity. And a third concept is gender expression. So sex assigned at birth, what is that? Sex assigned at birth is the male or female designation that a baby gets when the baby is born and is marked down on the birth certificate, generally based on visual observation of a baby's genitalia. And people usually assume that sex assigned at birth is going to be consistent with a person's chromosomal or hormonal makeup, but that doesn't always turn out to be the case. In um, close to 2% of births, the various characteristics that medical professionals use to determine sex don't always point towards male or female. And so these infants are said to have intersex variations. And that's sex assigned at birth. But a key distinction in transgender rights advocacy is between sex assigned at birth and a person's gender identity. Gender identity is a person's own internal sense of whether they're a man, a woman, a girl, a boy, or something else. So this is a concept that may find its origins in brain chemistry, your psyche, or your soul. Um, Some people don't exclusively identify as a man or a woman. These people are non-binary. And non-binary gender identities, that's the topic of my paper. So non-binary is not the same thing as transgender, even though we often say that non-binary people fall under the transgender umbrella. Transgender is defined by LGBT rights organizations as not identifying with the gender associated with the sex assigned at birth. Um, So, for example, Caitlyn Jenner, she's a transgender woman because she was assigned to the male sex at birth, but her gender identity is that of a woman. Caitlyn Jenner, however, is not non-binary because Caitlyn Jenner exclusively identifies as a woman, so she's a transgender woman. Non-binary is not the same as intersex. That's an important distinction. There are some people who have intersex variations and also non-binary gender identities, but those two things don't necessarily go together. Most people with intersex variations identify exclusively as either men or women, and most people with non-binary gender identities don't have any intersex variations. So the third concept I mentioned was gender expression. Um, In other words, the way that you express yourself to the world in terms of masculinity or femininity. And this is distinct from sex assigned at birth and gender identity. Um, And it's important to realize that non-binary is not the same thing as androgynous. Androgynous is a type of gender expression. um, But non-binary people may express their gender in any number of ways. Um, non-binary people sometimes appear stereotypically feminine or masculine, or sometimes um, they don't. Sometimes they have their own unique blends of masculine and feminine appearance. Sometimes they try to reject gender, gender attire and mannerisms, or sometimes they try to use fashion to subvert or undermine gender norms. So let's go on to that topic about how 
what the different types of gender expression for non-binary identity might look like. Um, so non-binary I'm defining as a sort of a broad set of diverse gender identities. And I have the definition not exclusively identifying as a man or a woman, um, which can encompass many things. And in fact, there have been many different identities that would fit under that heading in different historical time periods and cultural contexts. So I think, I think it's important to note that there are many cultures that have examples of non-binary gender identities, including the Hijras of India and the Two-Spirit peoples of some Native American tribes. When I was writing my article, I had this great big stack of books on my desk by anthropologists um, talking about different ways that cultures have defined genders throughout history and demonstrating that what we might think of as um, just the way gender is, is a Western idea of what male and female mean and is a historically and culturally specific idea. Um, there have also been non-binary people in the U.S. for a long time, too, um, some of them writing books on the topic since the 1990s. Uh, but since 2015 or so, we've seen this identity getting a lot more coverage in mainstream media and uh, and a lot of different people coming out and describing their gender identities in different and diverse and interesting and beautiful ways. So you, he you hear people now talking about having gender identities that they call gender queer or agender or gender fluid. Um, some of these identities blend masculine and feminine characteristics. Others try to avoid gendered characteristics. Others may switch back and forth at different points in time. Um, and others want to subvert or parody gender norms. Um, in 2014, Facebook started offering 50 different drop-down menu options for gender identity. And then that wasn't enough. So in 2015, they said, we'll just make gender a free form field. And now there are as many gender identities as there are um, people who want to claim them. So let's move on. Um, what In your paper, you talk uh, a little bit about feminist theory. So what role does feminist theory and its positive and negative effects have on the non-binary legal rights movement and, and legality in general? So my starting point is as a feminist theorist, and I think it's impossible to imagine the project of non-binary gender rights without feminist theory. Uh, feminist theorists in the mid to late 20th century uh, critiqued the compulsory and binary nature of gender roles for men and women. So they argued that there should be more space for people to live their lives outside of stereotypes about what we think that men and women should be doing. And in the 1970s, feminist lawyers like um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who started out as a lawyer, uh, began challenging laws that presumed specific roles for men as breadwinners and women as uh, mothers and homemakers. And she started a project of chipping away at laws that um, had these sort of stereotypes built into them. And this anti-stereotyping line of precedent became very useful, not just for um, women and men challenging um, these sorts of antiquated rules, but also transgender and gender nonconforming plaintiffs challenging discrimination based on stereotypes about what real men and real women should be doing. Uh, so feminist theory and um, feminist 
legal efforts have been really integral to um, thinking about non-binary gender rights. But but the idea of non-binary gender has also met with some resistance from some feminist corners. So some feminists have said non-binary rights projects are too utopian or too impracticable. Um, and others are afraid that non-binary gender would mean the end of gender. And if we look at what non-binary gen- people with non-binary genders um, are doing, it isn't that they're ending gender necessarily. What they're doing is imagining new possibilities for how we can live our lives in different gendered ways. And so that may dispel some of those concerns. Um, there are also some feminists who are afraid that if we have non-binary gender rights and transgender rights in general, uh, it's going to lead to a situation where gender fraud is allowed and where cisgender men, by cisgender, I mean a person whose gender identity matches the one that you would expect uh, for that person's sex assigned at birth. So cisgender men are going to start trying to enter women's sports and dominating women's sports. So that's been a concern from some feminists. Uh, but the law has ways to screen out bad faith behavior if that were to happen. Um, it does that, for example, with religious identities. Um, and it just hasn't been a problem in the places where you have a right to non-discrimination and self-identification of gender identity, places like California. Uh, so... I think those feminist concerns are going to be diffused. Uh, let's go on. Uh, what role does transgender advocacy in its positive and negative effects have on the non-binary legal rights movement and legality in general? Um, well, like I said, some non-binary people uh, count themselves as fitting under the transgender umbrella and others don't. Um, so there isn't perfect overlap between non-binary rights claims and those made by transgender men and women, um, but there is quite a bit of overlap. Uh, there's some tension there too. So some transgender rights advocates have had political success with a certain narrative that um, that says, I was born in the wrong body. And non-binary people may be seen to disrupt that narrative because many of them don't think they were born in the wrong body. They just don't identify as men or women. Their bodies are fine. Um, And so there's a worry that that narrative might get disrupted. I'm not sure if that narrative is what really should be doing the work on behalf of transgender men and women, though. So um, there may be other arguments based on defeating gender stereotypes and avoiding subordination that might be better stories for advancing transgender rights generally. Uh, there are also um, some worries that non-binary identity is too off the wall and that if non-binary folks are highlighted, then it's going to undermine legal arguments on behalf of transgender men and women, especially since there is a lot of bias out there against non-binary people. A lot of people think it's an identity that's not real or it's an Internet trend or it's a political posture. Uh, So that's been a concern, but we haven't seen that. We haven't seen that problem in, in states that are adapting new laws on behalf of transgender rights. So a lot of states... I mentioned eight states that are now allowing people to identify as non-binary on their identification documents. At the same time that states are enacting that that type of a law, they're also 
enacting laws to allow transgender men and women to more easily switch the gender designations from male to female. Uh, so the two sets of rights can work in tandem. And I think part of the reason why, why bias against non-binary people hasn't um, been so salient is because um, when these laws are up for a vote, non-binary people and their families and their friends are testifying before legislatures or telling their stories, they're beating lawmakers, and those things all dispel the myths and the fears about them as a group. So in your paper, you write about a contextual approach to non-binary gender rights. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think one of the problems with debates over non-binary gender is that opponents seem to think that there has to be a one-size-fits-all legal approach to it. So they say uh, non-binary people just want to get rid of all sex classifications or, or they want to end gender. And that would be terrible because what about affirmative action for women? What about women's sports under Title IX? Um, or they assume non-binary people want their own separate sports teams, which would be so expensive to set up, um, even though I don't think that's what non-binary people are generally calling for, because having a separate sports team could be stigmatizing. Um, it could be a bad idea to tell non-binary people they have to play on separate teams. So, so you hear arguments like that. And even some advocates seem to think that we need to have a universal set of legal definitions of sex and gender identity that we'd apply in every single context. And when you get into debates about what is the objectively best definition of sex or gender identity, um, it can make it appear as though there are irreconcilable ideological conflicts between people who want non-binary gender rights and those who don't, and maybe among feminists and other LGBT advocates. Uh, but if you don't try to settle those big debates, if instead you look context by context and ask, how could we include non-binary people in affirmative action in sports, um, in non-discrimination programs, um, then it turns out it's not that hard to resolve controversies. It's easier to see um, how non-binary people might fit in and how that project of inclusion might even have benefits um, for members of other subordinated groups. Uh, so my approach is not to say we need to have uniform definitions um, or we need to have one approach to this topic. Uh, I don't think the law needs to do that, especially considering that there aren't all that many contexts in which the law needs to know what your sex or gender identity is, especially not after Obergefell versus Hodges, which made same-sex marriage legal. So it doesn't matter what your sex is now if you want to get married. And it doesn't matter in very many contexts. And the ones that are left, we can work through one at a time and figure out in each context um, how can we pursue the project of non-binary inclusion? So let's expand on that. Um, what particular case-by-case -case regulatory models are there to expand non-binary gender rights, and what are their shortcomings? So my article um, discusses three possible approaches that law or policy could take to non-binary gender rights. Sex neutrality third category recognition and integration. Those are my three categories. 
So by sex neutrality, I mean eliminating sex classifications from the law. So we could treat sex more like the law treats race. You don't see very many um, race-based categories in the law. And an example of this would be instead of having restrooms that are divided up into the male and female varieties, we could have all gender restrooms and redesign them so that there are stalls that are private for every individual with doors that don't have cracks in them that people can see through, and then public areas with sinks. Um, So that would be a way of eliminating sex classifications and avoiding the need to do any gender policing. Um, But the drawback to this approach of eliminating legal sex classifications is that sometimes there are useful sex classifications. So, for example, I'd mentioned affirmative action. There are affirmative action programs uh, that aim to achieve gender diversity in um, in spaces that were formerly sex segregated. And those kinds of programs have to rely on classifications. Uh, So we wouldn't want to eliminate those. Um, Another problem with radical sex neutrality is that we still live in a in a world where gender policing happens in certain spaces. And so people may need to have validation of their identity. Um, To give an example of this, when California was talking about um, its Gender Recognition Act, it considered um, the question, well, why don't we just take the male and female designations off of people's IDs altogether? And the reason they didn't do that, one of the reasons was transgender people said, Um, that we need to have IDs that say what our gender identities are because we're still in a world where lots of restrooms and other spaces are segregated by sex. And if we don't have that ID that affirms our identities, we're at risk of being harassed by law enforcement. So that's a reason to continue having classifications. And that is also a reason why sometimes it's better to adopt a third category approach. So instead of eliminating sex classifications, you can add a third option. You can add the X option to the male and female one. And that's ultimately what California did in its Gender Recognition Act. The benefit is that now people have something other than M or F to choose from. And the the state is confirming the legitimacy of that choice in enacting the Gender Recognition Act. Uh, But the drawback is that an X designation could not possibly signify all the beautiful diversity of non-binary gender identities that are out there. Um, So it can legitimate those identities only to a certain extent. And there's a risk that lumping every non-binary gender identity altogether under one symbol X Um, can result in new stereotypes and could even be stigmatizing. Um, Okay, so that's uh, sex neutrality. And and I've talked about the second approach, which is third category recognition. Um, There's a third alternative as well that I call integration. And this approach would be keep your sex categories, keep binary categories, but redefine them along functional lines so that people with non-binary gender identities can fit in. And here's an example of what I mean by that. Uh, So in the healthcare context, a gynecologist could say, rather than only taking patients who are women, I'm going to agree to treat any patient who's got a uterus, ovaries, or other body parts that I specialize in. 
And that would mean the gynecologist could treat a number of people with intersex variations, non-binary people, and transgender men in addition to women. So that's a thoughtful way of approaching integration. Uh, but the drawback is that integration is not always done in a thoughtful way. And if it's not done carefully, it just amounts to trying to shoehorn non-binary people back into these misfit binary categories, male and female. Um, a problem with debates over non-binary gender is that people often assume we have to pick between one of these three approaches across the board, 100%. Uh, but there's not going to be any approach that's going to work 100% of the time. So rather than insisting on a single blunt strategy, I think we should ask, what are the competing interests that are at stake in every context in which the law needs to define people based on sex or gender? And what is the best approach for that context? So let's move on to identification documents, uh, gender markers, and there's a recent case involving the State Department and uh, passports that's particularly interesting that would be interesting for you to talk about. Okay, so I think you're referring to Zim versus Pompeo, um, which is a case that was brought by Dana Zim, who's an intersex um, non-binary person and uses they, them pronouns. And Zim wanted to travel internationally, um, but uh, Zim couldn't pick the M or the F designation on the passport because neither one fits them. And so Zim requested a passport with an X. The next. And the State Department said, no, you've got to pick MRF. And Zim said, no, neither one of those is me. Um, why should I have to pick one? Um, Zim then sued with an amazing team of lawyers from Lambda Legal Defense to challenge the State Department's policy on a number of grounds, including the argument that it is a violation of a law called the Administrative Procedure Act, which bans um, agencies from enacting rules that are, quote, arbitrary and capricious. So Zim argued, your policy of requiring a binary gender designation is arbitrary and capricious. And uh, the judge agreed because the State Department had no good reason for the policy. There are a number of other countries um, that allow X markers on passports, including India and Australia, and the State Department takes those passports um, there might be a concern about identity fraud, people changing their gender markers so their, law, so their names don't come up in law enforcement databases. Uh, but the State Department already allows people to change their gender markers from M to F, so this isn't a unique problem with recognizing an X. Um, and the main argument that the government made seemed to be that it'd be expensive, but they were vague on that. And they've been getting progressively more specific about how costly it would be throughout the course of this litigation. Uh, but most of it just seems to be knee-jerk resistance. Uh, there's a great quote from the district judge during one of the oral arguments. He said, I'll bet you that if the State Department rethought its policy and decided to accept the X designation, the sun would still come up tomorrow. Uh, and the case is now on appeal. I'll be curious to see how it comes out in the Tenth Circuit. I would, I would guess that uh, there might be a result in maybe nine months or a year. It takes a long time to brief these cases and then have oral argument and get an opinion. So beyond all the legal theory, how does this all play out in the in the real world? 
Um, well, Dana Zim is a person for whom this is definitely playing out in the real world. I know they want to attend conferences around the world and can't do that because the State Department has denied them a passport with a correct gender marker. And so uh, the right to travel internationally and to not have to choose an inaccurate designation is something with real world consequences for people who um, who need that, that right. Uh, but my article gets into a lot of different real world effects of legal doctrines and talks about why it is that the law thinks it needs to rely on binary sex and gender to operate. Um, so I, I tried to outline all the remaining areas after Obergefell where the law categorizes people based on their sex or gender identity. And those, the ones I came up with are identif identification documents, which we talked about already. Um, Anti-discrimination rules. Some people think for anti-discrimination rules to operate, we need to know who falls into what particular category. Uh, but the way most anti-discrimination rules operate is by banning categorizations. So they don't, you don't really need to know if someone's a man or a woman. What you need to know is whether someone is discriminating against them based on gender stereotypes. That's what's forbidden. Um, data collection for purposes of law enforcement. That's another real world, world area where people think that we need binary categories. Um, but there may be contexts in which it is more useful to have more nuanced categories. And it's better to be able to identify uh, people in terms of um, gender identity or sex assigned at birth. And, and when you're doing research, it might be um, good to have more nuanced and careful um, <clears throat> categories that you're working with there. Uh, affirmative action is another one. Um, another area is women's sports and Title IX. Uh, sex-segregated schools, um, restrooms, locker rooms, sex-segregated housing, and health care. Those are the other contexts in which um, the law uses sex categories. And I think that there are ways that non-binary rights can be recognized on the ground in each of these different areas, which is not to say I have all the answers, uh, but there are ideas, and they're not off-the-wall ideas, about how to do that. Uh, so the paper goes through all those different contexts and talks about um, how non-binary rights could be recognized in each. Uh, one of the biggest controversies, though, that I've, I've found resistance from people on when I presented the paper in different places is pronouns. So there's a there are some very strongly held grammatical objections to using the singular they. I'm often surprised by that. Maybe because I'm not a non-binary person, people are more comfortable telling me. I don't think I should have to change my grammar uh, in order to respect other people. Uh, but I, my view is that uh, rules of grammar should not trump your obligation to treat people with respect and dignity. And so you should use people's correct pronouns. And my paper argues that the refusal to use a person's correct gender pronouns could even be part of a pattern of prohibited sexual harassment. So what's the state of non-binary uh, legal rights today? Uh, so I think I might have said eight states now have laws or regulations 
that allow people to choose an X designation instead of M or F on their identity documents, that number might be nine. So I might have been wrong when I said eight. I think it might have been, I think Indiana might be added to the list. So it might be nine, along with Washington, D.C. and New York City. And I know the New York State Legislature is considering a law to do that as well. And there are other proposals around the country. Uh, in a few states, um, in addition to those, you might be able to go to court and get a court order to, to have your identification document changed to a non-binary gender marker. Um, but even though you have a driver's license or a birth certificate that says non-binary, that doesn't mean you're protected against discrimination. So it's also important that state laws prohibit discrimination. Um, and there are 22 states right now that explicitly prohibit discrimination based on gender identity. There aren't a lot of cases under these laws, but... My view is they ought to apply to non-binary gender. Um, federal law right now does not explicitly prohibit discrimination based on non-binary gender or even gender identity, which is unfortunate. What it does do is it prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, and courts have said that includes sex stereotypes. Uh, during the Obama administration, um, the Obama administration took the position that this would include discrimination on the basis of non-binary status in healthcare because it's a sex stereotype that gender is binary. Uh, but the Trump administration has announced that it has plans to undo this regulation and also do a lot of damage to transgender rights in general. So we're waiting to see what will happen there. Uh, there's a law right now that's been proposed in the House of Representatives called the Equality Act, and it would prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation in employment, housing, and public accommodations. Um, it doesn't mention non-binary gender specifically, but it defines gender identity broadly enough to include um, non-binary gender, and that would be a great law if it passed. Uh, but because the Senate is controlled by Republicans and the presidency is controlled by uh, Trump, it's unlikely to make it through. So as a final question, what would you want people, governments, and courts to take away from your article? Um, well, one hope I have for this project is that it might diffuse some of the scare tactics and speculation that opponents use to object to non-binary gender rights in courts and legislatures. Um, in the legislative debates over California's Gender Recognition Act, there was a conservative group that insisted uh, that the reasons it opposed non-binary gender weren't ideological, that they were worried that non-binary gender would unleash a, quote, Pandora's box of disastrous consequences. So my paper tries to go through all the real-world contexts in which um, people seem to assume the law needs to rely on binary sex or gender categories, and it argues that there's just no Pandora's box. As more and more states forbid discrimination based on gender identity and start recognizing X designations on identity documents, uh, we can see that th there's just nothing's coming out of Pandora's box. There's, there are no, um, no terrible consequences. There's no slippery slope to be worried about here. And I think this is important not just to try to persuade uh, people 
who have ideological commitments to binary gender, but also uh, there might be some progressives who are cautious and worried that non-binary gender is going to attract a backlash that's going to be harmful to other LGBT rights projects. And that's something that doesn't seem to be true. Um, Another thing I hope is that uh, this article will help people understand what non-binary gender is. I tried in the article to foreground um, stories in non-binary people's own voices by quoting them about their experiences with discrimination, harassment, and violence. Uh, One of the reasons for discrimination against non-binary people is the belief that their gender identities just aren't real. Um, It's hard to persuade people who think this, that non-binary gender is real. It's really hard to make an an abstract argument to prove to them that it is. So my paper doesn't try to make an abstract moral argument. Um, I'm hoping the stories and the quotations and the testimony are going to do that work to persuade Uh, And I also hope this project will inspire people to tell more stories and do more research on this topic um, and that uh, people will start to take non-binary gender seriously as an issue of diversity and inclusion. All right. Well, thank you, Professor Cluck, for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. Great questions. (laughs) 